Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. This is your host, Ali Tabevian. As always, you'll find more information about me and this podcast series in the show notes. If you bought it, a truck brought it. The trucking industry uses this catchy phrase to rightfully remind everyone of how important the trucking value chain is to the economy. A couple of episodes ago, we talked to a representative of the powertrain part of the value chain. Our guest was Amy Davis from the world leader in commercial powertrains, Cummins Engine. Amy leads Cummins' efforts in new, carbon-friendly power sources. Today's episode is very special because we go to the next step in the trucking value chain by talking to another world leader, public company Daimler Truck Holdings. In particular, we have the pleasure of hosting Jan Kronik, who is the head of strategy and corporate development and is based in Stuttgart, Germany. Started about 100 years ago as part of a group of companies commonly known as Mercedes-Benz, Daimler Trucks has been an increasingly independent part of the Mercedes Group, leading to its listing as a public company in December 2021. Today, the company has about 40 billion euro of annual revenues, spends about 1.5 billion euro in R&D every year, and has roughly 100,000 employees and sells about 110,000 vehicles a year. You can recognize their trucks and buses via the Mercedes Star logo in some countries, and in places like the United States, the familiar Freightliner trucks are, in fact, Daimler vehicles. One thing to emphasize about the large truck companies, especially Daimler, is how global they are. Jan will give you some details, but remember that in each geography he mentions, Daimler doesn't just have a presence, but is a major player. Daimler's customers typically pay twice as much for fuel over a vehicle's lifetime as they do in purchase price. Therefore, increased fuel efficiency is the recurring top objective of the company's development efforts. However, squeezing more efficiency out of engines that burn fossil fuels is getting harder. At the same time, commercial transportation is responsible for a good portion of global CO2 emissions, a fact that hasn't been lost on Daimler. Daimler's reaction has been to aggressively transition its offerings to a dual-track battery and hydrogen fuel strategy, which Jan has had a hand in formulating. This will be the main topic of today's discussion. Without further ado, let's get to it. Tech. Cars. Machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Welcome, everyone. We have a great guest for you today, Jan Kronik, who's uh, coming to us from Stuttgart, if I'm not mistaken, Jan. Is that correct? Is that where you are today? Yeah, that's where I'm out today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me here. Great. Thank you. And Jan and I have known each other in a business context for, uh, I want to say, a couple of years now. We've had mm-hmm. some really uh, great conversations about uh, the world of commercial transportation, both uh, medium duty and, and short haul, as well as heavy duty and long haul. As the uh, head of strategy and corporate development for Daimler Trucks, there aren't that many people in the world, and I'm not exaggerating, who know more about the uh, the segment than Jan does. And Jan, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I noticed that um, you uh, obviously have a have a PhD at, at, from, uh, and uh, you did that in Switzerland, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and then went on to McKinsey, and uh, and then what used to be Daimler slash Mercedes. Tell us a little bit about that background. Yeah, so thank you very much. So my background is, as you said, uh, I started out uh, at uh, St. Gallen University, had an MBA then in the University of Miami, came to McKinsey. And from that, uh, I started out with uh, Daimler AG back then, uh, which then turned into Daimler Trucks. And what I did is actually uh, focusing on sales and marketing, on after sales, on procurement. And then finally, it brought me back to strategy 
uh, being a consultant before that actually uh, came then uh, quite naturally. And I'm really enjoying then uh, for three years for now what I'm doing. Absolutely. And, and Jan, I remember I knew about you before we met because I do recall that a couple of the strategy documents that uh, I once read that was issued by Daimler Trucks, the Daimler subsidiary at that point, mm-hmm. actually had your name on it. So wow. that was a good way of getting introduced uh, to you even before, introduced to your thinking even before we uh, uh, we met. Tell us a little bit, Jan, about what does Daimler Trucks do? Clearly, it's an independent company uh, now, independent mm-hmm. public company. But what markets do you serve? What geographies do you serve? And in what geographies do we see the Mercedes logo still? And in what geographies will we see another name, let's say in the United States, that actually would be would be Daimler? Right. Yeah, sure. So Daimler Trucks is actually proud to be the biggest um, heavy-duty and medium-duty truck manufacturer in the world with uh, 450,000 trucks a year. We are a truly global company, uh, being in all the tried markets and selling to uh, close to 120 other markets over the world. Um, we have strong global uh, uh, local brands, which we lead globally. Uh, so in the US, we have Freightliner, Western Star, Thomas Built Buses. In Europe and Brazil, we have Mercedes-Benz. And in Asia, we have Fuso. And these are really, truly uh, strong brands, uh, which then a range of uh, light trucks, that is rather in Latin America and Asia, medium trucks, which are then in Europe and the US, uh, and then heavy trucks, which are also mainly focused in the in Europe and the US. So that is uh, the core of our business. And we are really proud uh, to serve all the world to all the ones who um, keep the world moving, because we are convinced by supporting our customers, we will have uh, the best impact uh, to the industry. One additional thing I've noticed about uh, Daimler and the Mercedes logo on, on big uh, vehicles is both overseas and I think in the U.S., I've been on uh, buses that look like they belong to to you. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And probably when you were still really young as a school child, you rode in a Thomas Built bus, which we're doing right. in the U.S. Uh, and then in the in, in Europe, we have Mercedes-Benz bus, which is actually one of the leading companies uh, for city buses uh, and also for long haul over the road buses, uh, where we actually selling them in Europe, in Latin America, and a lot of other countries. So that's also a very strong footprint of our company. Do those buses also have your own powertrains in them? And are they built uh, local to their geographies? Or is there a different distribution for that business? Yeah, they're actually uh, quite uh, local. So um, for Europe, for Latin America, for the US, and also for Asia. Uh, But they have one thing in common. They uh, use our uh, uh, own powertrain. Uh, as we also see here, a significant potential by um, playing with all the different levers to make that the best drivetrain then in the world. Excellent. Thank you. And when you say medium duty and heavy duty, just give us a sense for what that means in, in your vernacular. So medium duty would be kind of uh, what you call in the S class five and six trucks. So six to uh, 16 tons and even uh, above that, depending on which region you are, heavy duty trucks are normally from 16 to 50 tons, so class 7 and 8 trucks. I mean, they are really all different in terms of the applications they are in. So they might be long-haul trucks, yeah, particularly in the uh, heavy-duty segment, and distribution trucks in the medium-duty segments, and all what we are doing, uh, are trucks which serve special purposes. yeah. And um, so then we also have to, uh, by that, um, have a significant range of products uh, which we serve. 
Excellent. And one of the interesting things about the trucking industry is that a lot of the participants are both vertically integrated, but at the same time, actually transact and, and purchase from people who would otherwise be their competition, if I'm not mistaken. So for example, Daimler is uh, quite vertically integrated in terms of producing its own engines, as well as mm-hmm. uh, all the way through the vehicle vehicle system, and of course, all the aftermarket and, and sales support. Uh, is yeah. that correct? Yeah, so we are a pretty integrated company doing our own engines. However, in the US, for example, we also uh, buy engines from others and build them in their vehicles based on the customer requests in Europe. That is rather an integrated model. Why are we doing that? And I think we've shown that uh, quite nicely in, in, in our vehicles in the market is that if you have all the pieces of your drivetrain in your own hands, mm-hmm. you really can make a difference. Uh, our customers, they look at a total cost of ownership and one big piece is, of course, fuel consumption out of it. And so by controlling all the bit, bits and pieces from your engine, from your transmissions, from your axles and orchestrating that, then you can make a difference towards the customer which uh, they then really appreciate and uh, opt for your product. Exactly. To to draw a very distant comparison, but still really relevant one, one of the reasons an iPhone has one of the smallest batteries uh, mm-hmm. amongst all the smartphone manufacturers is their vertical integration. They just mm-hmm. know they can do, they're just a lot more power efficient. Right. And, uh, and that shows up in Apple's gross margins because that battery cost mm-hmm. is a big part of the cost of that, uh, that handset. And if you can get away yeah. with a smaller one, more money in your, in your pocket. One last question, overall question. Because I know it'll be on a lot of people's minds. As a spinoff from Mercedes, are Daimler trucks premium priced? Is that heritage common or is it just a different approach to, to your marketplace? That, that always was uh, and will be a different approach than Mercedes-Benz. So there, there is in our industry, I wouldn't say that there is a kind of a premium pricing. I mean, there either you can provide your customers uh, good value, yeah, which mm-hmm. they then can make money with. Yeah, then you get a premium. Yeah, so more money than the others. Or you cannot offer that, uh, and then you're not getting a premium. So I, as I think we are really particularly on the TCO field, in most markets have an advantage. Uh, customers are willing to pay more for Mercedes product or Freightliner product or Fuso product than for other brands. Uh, and that's what, what you could consider premium, but it's always uh, founded by uh, value we are providing to our customers. Excellent. During our interactions over the last couple of years, the subject has always essentially been about sustainability and efficiency. Mm. And you've been in the industry for a long time. How quickly and how strongly has the sustainability and ESG objective come along in the last few years? Has it always been there and it's sort of, we just notice it now, or has it suddenly become a very strong objective for the market participants? You know, I would say it has been there for a long time. Yeah. But uh, with now society, and I think that's uh, important to understand about ESG, that it's, yes, of course, it's also uh, there about uh, rulings. And so, but at the end of the day, it's all about society and society over the last three to five years, I think worldwide, but definitely in Europe, is more and more pushing for, uh, we need to have a more sustainable company, Uh, not company, but a more sustainable society. And by that, it means everyone who wants to be in this society. So every person, every a company also has to contribute to it. And that, of course, uh, then puts uh, particularly a different mindset in company like ours in place that we also say, of course, you need to understand how we can contribute to this target, which the society gives it to yourself. And this is getting more and more important to the people. And that also, by that also more and more important to us. Excellent. So I was, you kind of anticipated some of my questions here. How resilient is this focus? In other words, when there's an economic shock, 
uh, political shock in the case of some of the problems in in mm-hmm. Ukraine, does the focus suddenly go away, or is it or is it managed to to survive some of those shocks? The focus will definitely stay. So I cannot imagine that the focus on sustainability will go away. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's right now overshadowed by so many different things, uh, so many other crises. Yeah, but the focus still stays. And it will never go uh, go away. And that's why also our efforts will never go away. Um, And if you really think that through economically, so just from an economist uh, viewpoint, you always will see that, yes, all the resources will get scarce. Yeah, And by that, uh, you need to do something to be more sustainable, also from a purely economics reason. And that uh, will also fuel this trend. And by that, it will stay. And um, everyone has to contribute it uh, to support it. How much of it would you say, what's the split between what's mandated and what is self-imposed? That's really tough to differentiate. I've thought about that yeah, right. because, you know, I would say in principle, most of these things are self-imposed. But as regulation is also only reflecting society, you see that the ruling, at least in Europe, which is quite tough, hits mainly the things which we would do probably ourselves too. Yeah. Uh, so I would say. Um, you could view that now self-imposed uh, or by regulation, but it then comes from the same reasoning. Um, the reason I said, you know, to what extent does the uh, potentially does this uh, focus go away is because in this country in the 1970s, we had an oil shock and, the, and these various oil shocks come along and you can see how, while certainly the average vehicle has gotten more fuel efficient, an amazing mm-hmm. amount of the fuel efficiency of the engines has been given up to just bigger vehicles and heavier vehicles. And we just really have lost focus on it uh, several Mm -hmm. times. Uh, And so that's why, for me, it's always interesting to see to what extent are we really going to learn the lessons uh, this time. But I do think when the weather changes... But, you know, I think that's a great piece because, you know, if you think about it, in the 70s, that was really an external factor, or not external, but it was an oil shock. That's right. So it was not something which came from inside the society. And that's, I think, which is really... The difference now yeah because it's uh, carried by people who say if you don't do that we will not be uh, live in the world we want to live to that's the, at the essence that's kind of it yeah and by that it's uh, most susta- the sustainability so to say is more sustainable because it's not uh, driven by an external shock it's something which is coming from society by itself but just to add to that yeah i mean if you really think about it to decarbonize our industry Three things have to be in place. So one, we have to have all these products which can use either um, electric power or uh, hydrogen, yeah, because these, and we'll come to that probably later, yeah, will be the two sources of zero emission vehicles. The next thing, and we should not forget about that, is the whole infrastructure which has to be in place. So charging infrastructure for battery electric vehicles and high green hydrogen infrastructure for hydrogen trucks. And then the next piece which has to be in place that the total cost of ownership or the cost parity has to be there. yeah. And this is kind of a tricky formula yeah? because if one of them is zero, so if you don't have infrastructure, for example, I mean, then you cannot use our vehicles. yeah. That's how we think about it and also how we optimize the whole equation to make sure that our, what we are doing in terms of our vehicles is then also really translated in decarbonization of our industry. Tell us a little bit, maybe really break it down sort of in a matrix or whatever framework you put to it, what are the challenges of your transition? How do you think about it? And how do you assign different fuels for different applications mm-hmm. if that's where you're where you're headed? Right. So, so let me start, first of all, how we view that uh, decarbonization in terms of which kind of strategies we have. So I, I think we are thinking about that 
that we have will have two kinds of propulsion systems. One is a battery electric vehicle and one is a hydrogen electric vehicle. So fuel cell electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. So this is the basic of our strategies. Why do we have two different technologies? Because we see that on the hydrogen side, you have an energy carrier with hydrogen, uh, which allows you to put more energy on your truck. Yeah, And by putting more energy on your truck, you will have longer range, Yeah, which then will particularly support long-haul distribution. Yeah, So that is uh, the, the core application for hydrogen. On the battery electric side, we are pretty convinced um, you can use that too, of course, but that will limit you in range. And by that, you're rather on the medium-duty distribution side. Yeah. And then you have uh, on these two things um, a weight advantage too for hydrogen and a weight disadvantage for battery. This is the core concept why we say we need to have two technologies behind zero emission vehicles. And both of them, by the way, have now different challenges. So let me go to battery electric vehicles first. In battery electric vehicles, the core challenge is to bring enough uh, kilowatt hours uh, to the to the truck. So if you want to get a range of 500, 600 uh, uh, kilometers, you kind of need also 500, 600 kilowatt hours on the truck. Yeah, you can do your math now. So that means a lot of weight, uh, but they also a lot of cost because of battery are not that cheap. And then you can drive for this distance. Yeah. So now comes in the point that if you use that, you have actually, uh, and that's different from passenger car side, the challenge that as a professional user, you have to manage not only the one thing range, you also have to take into consideration where need the goods to go from A to B. So whole, the whole route optimization, where does the driver has to stop? Yeah, uh, How long he wants to stop? Uh, has to stop and then uh, also of course all the traffic information yeah so your optimization algorithm gets more and more complicated yeah and so the more you have to charge this truck by the way which uh, i mean 500 kilowatt hour uh, just make your math uh, with the currently existing 100 and 150 kilowatts yeah it takes you five hours approximately yeah with 350 you're down to two hours yeah uh, not, not not one and a half hours yeah then with megawatt charging, which, which will be in the future, you have around 45 minutes, which is the charging you want to have. Yeah, And then you really have to put all these factors in place to make your asset usable. And that's the big challenge uh, to get that. And if you then go to infrastructure and say you want to charge it, it's all about where you want to put your mega chargers yeah, in the future to charge this truck. Then you have to have for this uh, charging station, first of all, enough space and also enough charging power. So you're talking also easily in 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 megawatt you need, yeah, which is easily a mid-sized city, or also in the United States or even in Europe. yeah. Mm. And then you have to provide the, uh, the, the power immediately. So that is kind of the challenge equation, uh, what we're doing here, what we are trying, how to support that. First of all, of course, with uh, pretty good vehicles. You see that already with the eCascade and eActos in Europe and the US. Yeah? So I think we have the products available. What we're doing also now, and we just launched that, in uh, Europe is to also support the charging infrastructure where in Europe we bundled up there with uh, Traton and Volvo to build um, the first uh, on-road charging to support our trucks. Yeah? And this is the thing how you bring uh, battery electric vehicles to life. On the hydrogen side, it gets, of course, in technology. So we are, bet uh, we are going here uh, uh, very much into the fuel cell direction where we have a joint venture with uh, Volvo um, 
for uh, fuel cells, um, which is called cell-centric. Here, it's, of course, also about the on-vehicle uh, technology. But then you have to really see where is the hydrogen coming from, yeah? Because mm -hmm. hydrogen currently, particularly green hydrogen, is not something which is easily, easily available. So here... Uh, you really need to understand then how all the infrastructure companies will produce and then also deliver that energy carrier. On the other hand, if that is then available, the filling station for hydrogen and also the logistics to it will pretty much, uh, and also the filling, yeah, will be pretty much comparable to what you experience today. Yeah, And, and for all these things, we are, of course, uh, talking uh, and working together with companies now which could support uh, green hydrogen. Wow, thank you. That was a great that was a great education. I really uh, really appreciate it. How is the experience on the busing side uh, with respect to electrification? You know, here the experience is really good, and uh, with our EC tower in Europe, we have shown it now uh, for in cities, for example, like Wiesbaden, close to Frankfurt in Germany, that we are electrifying a whole bus depot, and and we can do that actually by really understanding every single route, and by that you can optimize the vehicle, the operations of the vehicle and then also uh, tailor it to the um, range the bus has, and by that, optimizing the whole bus operations. And for that, because it's all planable, battery electric buses are the prime, or a prime example how to operate electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. Maybe provide a little bit more uh, resolution, if you will, Jan, in terms of the type of routes or the type of distances. I guess you talked about distance, but are there types of routes, particular types of applications? that lead you to differentiate exactly where that electric applies versus where the hydrogen fuel, or is it really a matter of, uh, mostly a matter of distance that that vehicle travels that, that day or between uh, stations? I mean, it's basically a weight and distance, yeah? Okay. But then it goes into details. I mean, the perfect route for an electric truck is a daily route where you deliver uh, goods, from one point to the next, to the next, to the next, and then go home into your depot, can charge overnight and do that every single day. Mm -hmm. Completely planable. That's, by the way, why you see also in the bus uh, business, which we, of course, also doing in the city buses, electrification is great, yeah, because mm -hmm. here you are for every single bus a completely planable route. So you can predict whether battery range is enough or not. Mm -hmm. yeah? mm -hmm. So if you're losing that optimization grid, yeah, so to say, then it gets always trickier for electric trucks. Yeah, so, but, so if you have to first the first on highway charger, that's all doable. But of course, then you have to get there, charge that has to be available, and then you can continue your route and go somewhere else. So the longer and the more flexible you want to uh, use your truck, the more uh, optimization uh, parameters you have to consider. In order to support that, we we are building these charging networks so that, of course, our customers can do that as flexible as they want to. And then comes the limitation where I would say it gets really tough uh, to use battery electric vehicles if you're then coming into ranges, over, daily ranges over 800, 900,000 kilometers per day. Yeah, Because then if you look at how much you have to recharge, then a hydrogen truck most likely uh, will always beat a better electric truck in terms of uh, efficiency of use. That's right. It's interesting. One of the interesting things about hydrogen is people think of it as an alternative fuel, but it's also um, a means of uh, storage. Absolutely. Uh, of storage of electric uh, power, mm. essentially storage and transportation of electric power. And I think we did the math once. In, in the US, uh, a modern class eight long haul vehicle 
has 3,000 kilometers of range. You know, mm -hmm. it has a 300 gallon tank, 1,200 liters or so mm -hmm. that it fills in 45 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it has an apartment behind the uh, cabin, and that truck goes for 2,000 miles. You know, on, mm -hmm. on fuel. And I think we did the math once, and it would take a 15 or 16,000 pound battery mm -hmm. for that vehicle to come anywhere close to being able to mm -hmm. handle. And by the way, it's also limited by the ambient temperature, you know, et cetera. Right. So I think I'm so glad we're talking a lot about hydrogen because people keep thinking electric. Uh, that's where the market caps are. That's where the attention is. Et cetera. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of applications, it just doesn't really work. Not in the sense of the vehicle not being able to run on batteries even, but just you have to have energy delivered to it at the right time and, 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 yeah. and quickly because these are commercial vehicles. They're not designed to sit around doing nothing, right? Yeah. <laughs> point no, of no, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's, um, and also, as I said, and you touched upon it, yeah, also putting the infrastructure in there mm -hmm. is, uh, if, if you look at it, for a limited amount of battery electric vehicles, that won't be any problem, even, uh, let's call it, if you're in the ramp up, yeah, to put the infrastructure in there. But if you want to, for every single truck in the future, the charging network, then you will not, you probably will get even all these uh, charging stations in there then to provide the energy at the at the day where you need it. Yeah, this will be then the huge challenge. And I'll get to the charging infrastructure in a second. We talked about battery electric. We talked about mm -hmm. hydrogen fuel cell. Presumably there are variants inside of these in terms of the particular type mm -hmm. of electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. And presumably, since you don't know exactly when that transition will be substantially mm -hmm. complete, if you will. Presumably, you're also maintaining uh, some development uh, path for the combustion mm -hmm. uh, engines. I know it's more fun to have all these things doing, but is, is, it, is it an advantage or a disadvantage to be vertically integrated when there are multiple platforms like this that need to be uh, developed? Would it be easier to have one or two global manufacturers manufacture commercial-grade electric vehicle powertrains, et cetera, and for you to purchase mm -hmm. from them? Or do the players are they big enough individually to handle all of this at the same time uh, comfortably? So in terms of virtual integration, and uh, I mean, you're kind of right, we're coming from the heritage that we experienced that by optimizing every single piece of it, you can make the system much more efficient. What we are seeing now in the uh, electric world, that actually a similar logic also applies. Yeah, so that it's, of course, about um, the, the one or the two or the three pieces to optimize them, but to get the system right, particularly if they have a battery, an e-drive and cooling, which you then optimize, then you can get uh, make your vehicle much more efficient and get then the last mileage out of it. And, and that's why I would argue a certain degree of vertical integration makes extremely sense. Whether you really have to go to every single depth of cell chemistry, for example, I would say, let, let's see. Yeah. Um, but to understand it, it's important. Yeah. So, so there, I would say, virtual integration helps. Do you have to be present in every single technology? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That would be for me rather uh, the more important question here. I think it's all about investing wisely <laughs> and looking for partners. Yeah. So that you share your risk and and by that also the chances and to see uh, that you uh, get together with uh, people who can help you uh, to. Uh, go for the right direction. It's interesting, Jan. I was obviously making, trying to make the question a little more controversial, you know, to, for 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 fun. But in my experience, the companies that think that they don't need to be vertically integrated in certain key aspects, the ones that say we don't need, we can outsource a, a lot, mm -hmm. 
either have a lot of market power in the sense that they can force the vendors to develop exactly what they want, as opposed to yeah. something that serves a broader broader environment, you know, because they are the economy of scale as the as the prime contractor, mm-hmm. or uh, they don't know who their customers are in, 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 to, to a degree of precision that's um, that's good for long-term success. If mm-hmm. you know who your customers are and you know them really well, it's really hard not to be vertically integrated. It really is. Let's go back to the concept of actually delivering the the uh, energy source, whether electricity or hydrogen, mm-hmm. where it needs to mm-hmm. be. I mean, clearly in the past, Daimler and other trucking companies, truck companies, not trucking companies, but truck mm-hmm. companies, I mean, you don't you don't own gas stations, right? You don't really have any of these things. So that's another degree of embracement of the value chain, if you will, mm-hmm. for delivering your solution that you're now involved with. So I'll go back to the original question. I mean, they're the best companies in the world. And Daimler, as you said, is sort of number one in its space. But how much does that strain the organization to have to now uh, really expand further into mm-hmm. the ability to, to, to enabling its end customers to actually embrace a solution? What does that say about the customer's readiness to use the solution? It says that uh, the customer and also us and the whole industry has to learn how to operate mm-hmm. uh, zero emission vehicles. Yeah? And uh, I think what we are doing by also exploring now um, charging infrastructure, at least putting the stone into the water, so to say, that also others follow and will develop, is mm-hmm. to explore that together with our customers. And you know, this is something which I, I think we in Daimler Trucks, with also our really focus uh, with our brands on customers, are doing already that we are seeing, hey, we are here to help the customer being successful. And now we experience if we don't uh, at least start with infrastructure, mm-hmm. then the customer is lost and we will not do our best to to go after decarbonization of our industry. Because as I said, I mean, the truck alone is great. And I can assure you, we will have the best trucks here. But without charging the truck, it's nothing. And, and that's what we're doing. And then on the other hand, of course, it comes into play that we are seeing that if you do then, and that's, by the way, also interesting, charging right, and you have uh, the right truck, then you can optimize that again, then you can get to other charging times, which then also for the customer is again, uh, something uh, which uh, has an advantage for the customer. And then if the customer chooses our truck, of course, for us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's actually um, in, in a lot of the world of technology, and I know maybe I'll go into it very briefly here in a second. But first, I'll say my humble suggestion, Jan, as a financial professional, is to keep some of these efforts somewhat independent inside of the organization and don't integrate them too much. Because in the end, the financial benefit to your shareholders will be when mm-hmm. these uh, these solutions have an, have an independent life to them and you can spin them off or sell them yeah. or for financial gain. And I'll tell you the example, the whole Tech Cars Machines podcast series and a lot of the things we do in the in the space started mm-hmm. several years ago when we were working for Qualcomm, when mm-hmm. uh, we started thinking about what happens when all these technologies, including the, the battery technologies uh, that are being developed for the mobile environment, start spilling into the world mm-hmm. of things and, and big things in, in your case. And the history of Qualcomm is that currently they sell intellectual property and some semiconductors designed mm-hmm. around a particular protocol called CDMA. Yeah. But to get people to adopt it 20, 25 years ago, they had the protocol, they made the semiconductors, they made a mm-hmm. handset, which they sold, uh, I can't remember who they sold it to, they had parts of the frequency spectrum that they acquired, they had. They made base stations that they eventually sold to, sold to Ericsson. 
to basically mm. be able to provide a reference design for the adoption. And now it's a you know very successful company. It sold the frequency to AT&T. It sold the base stations to Ericsson. I think it sold the handsets to Nokia. And, and it's now back to the core mm. offering that it always wanted, wanted to have. Mm. How consistent or how common is the belief in hydrogen in the, uh, in the trucking world? Is it where Daimler is the, is the leader in really considering hydrogen as a, is it as, as a key, uh, key leg? Or are there others who are saying, no, I think we can do, uh, just do batteries? I think this is a uh, battery and hydrogen. There are, uh, when you see that, uh, different perspective to it. So there are also voices who are saying you can do everything with battery. There's, I think, not that many voices you can do everything with hydrogen, but there are, I think, equally many who say it, uh, you can do it, uh, you, you, it, it's better to do it with hydrogen and uh, with battery. I think where everyone agrees to that uh, battery vehicles will be first, yeah, because um, uh, batteries uh, are sooner available uh, than uh, green hydrogen, as I said, yeah. And then it's all about how competitive at the end of the day in terms of TCO, yeah, the uh, hydrogen trucks will be. And, and uh, as I said, if you really want to go to these long mileages and, and also, as you said, I mean, um, support the customers in their ecosystems, how they are driving that today, mm-hmm. then there will be a case for it. Because otherwise, uh, if you're not providing the range um, and the efficiency, then the customer has to change uh, their business model. Yeah? And this is something which provide, uh, builds then additional costs for them. Mm-hmm. In the development of hydrogen as a as a reliable uh, source for commercial transportation, yeah. what are the first couple things that need to happen for for a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle in your world to be able to have some near term applications? What are the couple key things? Is it fueling stations on a couple key routes, or is it the development of uh, better fuel cells, or what's what's the key hurdle there? So the key hurdle uh, is. Um... Right now, uh, really, the timely infrastructure and the uh, and not only have hydrogen but green hydrogen, yeah. Because uh, I mean, otherwise um, we probably would have the same probably uh, with diesel, yeah. And the next thing is then the uh, fuel cell itself. Here, the technology is. I, I mean, you can see that from us. We already have now the first vehicles uh, in our uh, uh, test fleet, yeah, and they are running. Uh, and so with the technology gets tested. So um, this also, of course, has to be fine-tuned uh, to serious production. But the fuel te- 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 technology won't be the, the hurdle to scale hydrogen trucks. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that I know are not mainstream, but just a little uh, fun to talk mm-hmm. about. What about some of the the buzz that's happened recently? I know the British have spent, the British government has spent a few million dollars on some centers that uh, are thinking about burning hydrogen directly, combustion setting, uh, versus needing to convert it to to electricity via a fuel cell. Is that yeah. something that's at all realistic, or is it uh, is it just a, a research project really at this uh, this stage? A science project. So I would say it's it's uh, definitely more than a research project. Uh, for that, also too many are, are looking at it. If you look at it, it's it's a technology which um, you never should uh, never should fall out of sight. Uh, if you just go to the pure figures, facts and figures, you see that the efficiency of a, a combustion engine for hydrogen is lower than a fuel cell. Yeah, in terms of how much hydrogen it needs. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, then you also still have an engine which is a combustion engine, so you still would have to deal with uh, exhaust, which have you you have to clean, yeah. So which uh, adds other problems. And then if you look at the uh, performance of engines like that, uh, they will be 
most likely more suited to special applications. Yeah, but it's definitely something. I mean, uh, if you would listen to all these engineers which are doing that, and that's great about these engineers, there might be solutions to most of it. Yeah, and then it comes down to first of all, can it be really done in the timely manner? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So will it be what will be the uh, will be the speed out of it? And second of all, is uh, a combustion engine in the future uh, still something which uh, we as society will do want or will allow? Yeah, for all the applications uh, we want to do, and uh, this will be, by the way, I would say, also different from region to region. Whether you will have a completely agnostic ZEV regulation, yeah, that you say, yeah, I mean, zero emission vehicle. Uh, you can do that with any type of technology, or you might have other regions where you see ZEV means really no emissions, yeah, so no emissions at all, no exhaust, and then by that you you might rule out then here and there uh, the um, potential for technology. Yeah, interesting. One and of the, this one is of not the... yet set. I mean, that's open how this game will go out. What's your, is there a time frame where you can say our transition to EVs and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles will be 20% of our deliveries, 10% of our deliveries. What uh, is there a forecast? And nobody's going to hold you to it, but what's, what's the sense when that transition in unit volume will take place? So we are committed uh, to have our neutral, so CO2 neutral um, sales in the trite market out there latest uh, till 2039. Yeah. And uh, till 2030, we'll see. Um, up to 60% of zero emission vehicles in the trite market. How much up to 60% that will be, it really depends on how the market and the cost parity and the infrastructure develop. Yeah, so because if that, as I said, does not develop, you might have a much lower share. So let's talk about that a, a little bit, maybe. What is it that would be most helpful for you to see from governments, from startups, the venture community, proponents of hydrogen, the proponents of uh, electric, uh, building additional uh, electric distribution capability. Mm. What, uh, what are the most immediately useful things you would like to see from your ecosystem? And you pick which ones, which parts of the ecosystem you'd like to talk about. So I would say, um, and we discussed it a lot, uh, infrastructure is mm -hmm. key. Yeah, In hydrogen and in electric uh, and, and for charging. And here, I think, and I already see that, at least in Europe, that in charging, there are more mid-sized to big-sized company investing into it. I think this is important that that happens. And I think on, a, on the hydrogen side, I think it's important that uh, here, uh, bigger and that also, by the way, happens, uh, big companies are investing into the production of green hydrogen and then the transport uh, back to Europe, the US, and, and wherever it's needed. Yeah. And, and this is the type of uh, investment which already takes place and should continue to take place. You know, it's interesting, uh, Jan, I know we keep coming back to infrastructure uh, a lot, but that's very that's actually in itself very revealing in the sense that what I'm taking away from this is that from where you sit, you're less concerned about your ability as Daimler to deliver vehicles that meet the, the sustainability criteria and and it's much more about the people around your ecos in your ecosystem being able to mm. provide fuel to them and basically support their use in the field actually let me let me ask you about the use in the field for a second do the people know in the field how good are they at repairing these vehicles or and servicing these these new uh powertrains and are they really the same people that 10 years from now will be able to yeah. repair what are much more sophisticated powertrains in some ways 
Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, this uh, we we are. I mean, we are training now our field staff in, in the US and also in Europe where we're rolling out our e-vehicles to make sure that they can repair them. We will need uh, different qualifications for them. Mm-hmm. So we are running now uh, requalification programs, yeah, to uh, enable our staff to do that. You need different skills, but it's not something you cannot do. I mean, it's it's something which is safe to be repaired, yeah, and uh, which you can really do and service. And uh, we, we and this is kind of in our control, you know, this is something we are doing daily to retrain people to whatever um, product innovations we put to the market. Yeah. And uh, at least the feedback we're currently having is uh, that we're doing a good job there and our mm-hmm. vehicles can be serviced throughout the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll make a couple comments here and then uh, and then I'll turn it back over to you to basically talk about whatever else we, we might have missed. One comment is, as you know, I've... Uh, I travel a fair bit in this world mm. of, uh, of of trucks and and trucks production, and one of the interesting things when you t- when you discuss Daimler is that whether friend or competition or what is it coopetition you know in the, mm. of, of the other institution invariably there's a lot of respect for Daimler engineering. So I think in terms of what our listeners have taken away, uh, what they want to read between the lines here, what however they want to interpret it. I think what they're getting here is a sense for what really the most well-respected technical organization in the um, field. Uh, certainly one of the, you know, if not the most, certainly tied for a first, you know, however many way tie you want. It's a really interesting degree of respect in the community. And I think that's why I was so happy to have this conversation because where you can take it at least shows where the leading organization can take it. Not necessarily yeah. that everybody else could follow, but at least what's possible. And that's and that's right. important. The other thing I'll mention since we've talked about hydrogen a fair bit, and I think it's kind of missing in, in the general understanding of the space is in electrification, it's not clear who the really big industrial or, or uh, existing players in the market are who would be really big winners. In electrification, mm-hmm. in other words, there are big players for whom electrification is is a necessity because mm-hmm. of their concern for sustainability or the demands of regulators, and you know, and so on and so on. But if I look at the world of uh, hydrogen, there are enormously capable entities, mainly the uh, the oil companies, mm-hmm. that have an extraordinary incentive in hydrogen being a big part of the solution right. versus just electricity. Because in electric vehicles, they don't have much of a role to play unless they substantially transition. Mm-hmm. But when it's about producing Molecules, right? Mm-hmm. Producing a, a, what is a gas and then compressing it into a in, into a liquid and transporting it around the world. You know, producing yeah. it with the right type of electric. Oil companies are extraordinarily large and extraordinarily capable and extraordinarily powerful uh, mm-hmm. organizations, and they have an enormous vested interest in this field. And oddly enough, they're very good at describing it to you when you talk to them. But I don't really think they've done as much as they they could in terms of really. Im- going around to the world of industry and embracing mm. it and saying, tell us what we can do to make this all, all, all happen. I think your last aspect is really interesting about uh, the, the oil companies. I think that, that there, there you also will see a change in hydrogen because at least in Europe, but probably also elsewhere, the understanding gets more and more that, of course, I mean, transport is one application of hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But if you really want to decarbonize a society, a country, yeah, then hydrogen is probably the one energy source which really you can do it yeah because and of course i mean probably there are a couple of countries which you can do only electricity without storing yeah with um water wind and solar that there might be a couple of countries but not that many yeah and for all other countries you will have to import 
energy. And if you want to import green energy, that will be in some type of form hydrogen. Yeah. And you know, that, that's why I'm really thinking if that is then the case and you have hydrogen as a primary energy carrier, like you, by the way, and that closes the loop to the oil companies like diesel today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then you will come to the point where you use this energy carrier for many other applications, which also will then fuel hydrogen in our trucks. So that's probably one thing um, which gets a little bit underestimated by looking between the lines of, of battery and hydrogen. I think the next piece is in this transition from combustion engines to zero emission vehicles, because that's, if you want to, the transition for us in this decarbonization. We, we're talking a lot about these things, oh, uh, ICE engines are getting less and, and wow, what happened there? But at the end, uh, that's what I'm seeing more and more as an organization. You also can view it the different way. Hey, there's a completely new market rising. Yeah. Zero emission vehicles. Right. Yeah. Which, of course, I mean, you have to invest in them. You will have new propulsion systems and so on. But at the end, you will have also another logic how they are operated. Yeah. There are other markets uh, like charging. Yeah. They are developing. As you said, I mean, there are a couple of players which um, might be interesting for them to do that, but they're completely new market developing. And I think this can be also viewed as a chance. And uh, it would be arrogant to say we already have completely figured out how to capitalize that. But at least I would say, and probably there are also other, others, yeah, but, but I think we have a good plan on how to see ZDV and ZDV market share rising as a chance. Absolutely. And the ZEVs, they'll open up like, exactly like you said. I mean, here, here's actually a an interesting example. I went with a friend who was picking up his Tesla here locally mm. and the delivery room uh, was a very big, uh, big room was all indoors. They were delivering mm. vehicles indoors. And you think about this, it's like, this really wouldn't work if mm. people were turning on gas engines yeah, right. <laughs> inside of this room <laughs> and everybody mm. would be choking to death in, in a very short mm. order. And for these vehicles to be able to, let's say, deliver, drive into warehouses and deliver, you know, to specific locations inside a very large warehouse, as opposed to in the in the depots outdoors. Okay. I mean, those are very interesting opportunities for reconfiguration of a lot of industry that's uh, that's really not there mm -hmm. when you're emitting fumes. Jan, I I want to thank you very much for doing this with us. Uh, I think, as our listeners can probably guess, just based on the time zone differences, this is uh, Jan uh, really doing us a favor on a, on his Friday afternoon and spending some time with us here. And I really appreciate it, Jan. I hope it was wonderful for us. And I hope it was uh, at least kind of interesting uh, for you to have done this. I, I'm very thankful for it. Yeah, thank you very much, Ali. It was really a lot of fun, extremely interesting. And thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you very much. Tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com.